Hey everyone, welcome to the podcast for the Vineyard Church in Campbellsville, Kentucky. If you haven't already, we encourage you to check out our audio archive at vineyardcampbellsville.org. You can also subscribe on iTunes or wherever you like to get podcasts. And now, here's this week's message brought to you by Senior Pastor Adam Russell. So I wanted to take this opportunity, and I wanted to talk to you uh, about giving and generosity. I haven't done this. I looked in about four years at the Vineyard, and that is not okay. And so I want to talk to you in a message this morning that I'm calling an invitation into generosity. And as soon as I say that, some of us in the room are probably like, are we going to get beat up with guilt? And I just want to say, no, this is a guilt-free zone. This is a guilt-free zone. That's not what we're going to do this morning at all. We're not going to do that. But what I wanted to do is I did want to talk uh, very big and then also at the end very plain about Christian generosity and Christian uh, giving. And I wanted to do that in in a couple ways this morning. Uh, I wanted to do it basically like this. I wanted to start with a few big ideas. So I wanted to spend maybe the first half or the first two-thirds on just some very, very big ideas. And then I wanted to work our way towards things that were increasingly uh, practical and increasingly pragmatic. And then at the very end, I want to spend about four or five minutes just telling you uh, a few things that are happening here at the Vineyard and the future or the next horizon for our church, just so that we're all on the same page. And if you're taking notes this morning, a decent outline would look like this. We're first going to talk about how our God, our Father is a giver. And then we're going to talk about embodiment. And then I want to spend a moment chatting with you about how life is a flow. And then we're going to start getting practical because you got to have a plan. And even more practical, what does this actually look like? And then I want to end with a few things here at the Vineyard. A few things here at the Vineyard. So if you are taking notes, this is a good way. Or maybe you just want to take a picture on your phone. It's a good way to follow along. And so we'll just jump right in. Uh, The first thing I want to talk to you about this morning is the fact that our Father is a giver. So anytime we're talking about uh, theology or anytime we're going to make some sort of a, a bedrock statement or bedrock claim, one of the first things you need to do is it's always very good to start with God and to say, well, is this in the scripture? And then even more importantly than is it in the scripture, uh, does the scripture point to showing us that this is actually in God? Is this like a part of who he is? And one of the things that the Bible is fairly concrete about is that God is, by his nature, a giver. And so the next thing I want to do here is just for a few moments, I want to skip like a stone across uh, some scriptures this morning and just show us how again and again, one of the things that keeps coming through is that God is a giver and God is generous. Uh, The first revelation of the Bible is that God is a creator. Like even before there's any sort of awareness that God is a savior or God is a redeemer or any of these things that we come to associate with God, the first thing that pops up is that God is a creator. Uh, But one of the things you notice when you begin to read the opening chapters of Genesis is this idea, it's sort of like underneath the idea. The idea that's underneath the idea of God being a creator is is this. Uh, There's something generous about who he is. Uh, All of creation is an expression of his own generosity. And And it shows up most poignantly and most explicitly when God makes uh, man and when he makes woman. And so 
uh, we see that God is generous. Uh, he's a creator, and he's made uh, man and woman. And the Bible says very, very plainly that he formed Adam from the dust of the earth, and there's this really weird moment where God breathes the breath of life into Adam. And how many of you know that uh, at some level we are all uh, a living expression of the exhale of God, right? Like God just breathed the breath of life. And that image is not just, not just about like people have received uh, uh, the spirit of God, but there's an exchange there that even in the creation of male and female, in the, even in the creation of humankind, God was in some way being profoundly generous. He was giving of himself. He was giving life. He was giving the spirit. And so for you to even be here, uh, it means that at some deep and profound level, human beings have received something from the creator. Uh, how many of you know that none of you asked uh, to be alive? Uh, no one asked to be born. Uh, no one uh, no one worked or earned anything previously that, uh, that, that got you born into existence or brought you to this day. Uh, everyone here uh, is in some ways uh, a, a free expression of the kindness and the generosity of God. And, and part of what this means is uh, you've received something from him. And because of that, your life is a gift, you know? God breathed the breath of life. Okay. So that's like the opening parts of Genesis. And then if you just fast forward in Genesis just for a moment, you'll come up to this guy named Abraham. And one of the things that happens in Abraham's life is God comes and begins to walk with him and says, from the very beginning, Abraham, you're going to have lots of kids. Why don't you count the stars? Uh, you'll have more descendants than that. Why don't you count, count the sand on the seashore? You're going to have more descendants than that. And if you remember the story, one of the things that quickly comes to the surface is Abraham has no children, right? And this keeps happening year after year. And in fact, uh, God keeps telling Abraham, for over 25 years, you're going to have more kids than anyone. You're going to have more, and he's got no one. And now Abraham is a very, very old man, and his wife is a very, very old woman. Sarah is well past the, the time when a woman could have a kid. And I kind of love this because all of a sudden, when they have no more strength left in their body, and when Nothing they could do in nature would lead to having a child. Like when there's no, no connections that could be made, everything is just sort of like out of date, expired. Then God gives them a promised son, you know? And so even in the story of Abraham, at the very beginning of God's story with Abraham, uh, the child that they have specifically Isaac, uh, it's an expression of God's generosity. That's not just their kid. This is God doing something in them and through them. And then, then Isaac grows up. That's their kid. Uh, he grows up and God says something like, uh, Abraham, you should sacrifice your kid. Or at least Abraham thinks that's what he says. And he's going to follow through because, you know, you, you do what God says. That's kind of the way Abraham flowed. And he goes to the top of the mountain and right when he's about to raise the knife, he looks up and he sees he sees a ram in a thicket, right? And how many of you know that Abraham would have been like super relieved to find the, the ram in the thicket? And the only reason I'm telling that story is uh, even in that moment, God is still doing his, his giving, his generous, and his provisional work. And then, then everything that God had promised to Abraham begins to happen in this really big way. All of a sudden, from one man and one woman and from one child, all of a sudden, after a few generations, this nation is born, and through a really long and complicated story, they end up being slaves in Egypt, and God ends up being generous again. He ends up being a generous giver, 
And he, he gets them out of Egypt. And these people who had been there for many generations and who had literally nothing and who made Egypt the most powerful nation on the planet, they leave Egypt. And when they leave, they don't just leave with their freedom, but they leave with the Egyptian silver and gold. Like, there's something about who God is. He's giving freedom. He's giving provision. And then when they're out in the desert, they have a cloud by day. They have a fire by night. And they have manna every single morning. God just continues to give and to care. And then after that, God gives the law. And, and by the way, the Old Testament law, it's not just an arbitrary set of rules. It's the basic guideline for entering the good life. Like when, when God gives the Ten Commandments, uh, this is just a basic little document that says, essentially, you want to have a good life? Well, here's the first thing. Uh, love God first and most. Uh, don't kill people. Don't, don't covet and steal from your neighbor. You know, it's just, you know, we read that like, oh, the rules. No, this is just, this is just the basics for having a good life with other people. Basically, it's God saying, hey, love me, and here's how you can love me, by treating other people great, you know? And if you do that, then all of a sudden your life begins to work in a profound way. And God's just providing. He's being generous for people who just didn't know. And then if you go a little deeper into the Old Testament, after that whole Ten Commandment thing, uh, more laws got made. And one of the things that you can see if you begin to sort of dig into some of the other Old Testament laws is God is always making provisions for the poor and the foreigner. Like it's, it comes up Every single time. Like, God doesn't just want to provide for his own people, but you see this extension in the provision of God that he really wants to make it clear that he wants to bless people and he wants to bless them so that they can bless uh, the marginalized, the outsider, and even the foreign. Like, it just keeps coming up over and over. God would say things like this Hey, if you're going to be a farmer, when it comes time to harvest the field, don't harvest the corners, you know? Like, leave the edges of your fields. And who would, who would come and gather that? Well, the widows and the orphans and the foreigners and the trap. Like, God was saying, I want the blessing that I'm going to give you. I want you to trust me that, that the center is enough for you and your family. And if you leave the edges, there'll be something for someone else. And the only reason I'm telling you this story is that God keeps making this note of, I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to give to you. But then I, I want to give to other people too. And if you'll trust me, we can do this together, right? Like, what, what's the point? Well, God's a giver. He just keeps giving. And then if you fast forward all the way up to Jesus, well, you get to the most famous Bible verse in the whole Bible. John three sixteen. Why don't you all read this with me, right? For this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son. Stop. Thank you. God loves the world. How does he demonstrate his love for the world? By giving, right? By giving his son, Jesus. Jesus is a gift. That's one of the things that you and I need to know every single time uh, we wake up or every time we come to church. Uh, Jesus is a gift. Jesus is not primarily a get-out-of-jail-free card. Jesus is not primarily a don't-go-to-hell card. Uh, Jesus is not even principally a sin solution. If you grew up super reformed, you might have grown up thinking that Jesus is mostly like a sin solver. Uh, Jesus solves sin that's not principally who he is. Jesus is a gift. And Jesus is a gift from a generous father. 
God is a giver. Now, here's why I've labored on this one so long. I've labored because in various points in the New Testament, especially Romans chapter 8, Paul says things like this. Uh, you and I, we're sons and daughters of God, and we've been made co-heirs with Christ Jesus. And how many of you know that oftentimes traits and attributes from mothers and fathers get passed on to their children? Right? How many of you look like your mom or dad? How many of you act like them? How many of you told yourself for years you wouldn't be them, and now you are? It's like, like DNA is real, you know? It's real, you know, from the very beginning. From the very beginning, uh, DNA is real. And so there's something, there's something that just sort of exists in family. Sometimes you look like a parent or maybe you act like a parent, and then there's also just the culture of your home, you know? And then you were like, I'm going to have a different kind of home, and then you go out and you start your own family and you have the same home. It's like, how, how many of you cook some of the same things your mother cooked? Right? Like, it just, right? it's all in the family, Right? And so the reason I've sort of labored this whole point about God is a giver and God is generous is just really, it's real basic. Like, if we're sons and daughters of God, then, there, then it stands to reason there, there must be something generous in us. And if there's not something generous in us, that's sort of like a red flag. It's like, what does it mean to be a son of God? What does it mean to be a daughter of God? Oh, it means to be a giver. It means to be a giver. It means to be open-handed and, and uh, generous. Okay. Number two, embodiment. We'll go a little quicker here. Now, right along with the first reality of God as a generous God, we have to pick up another bit of theology, another big idea, and it's the idea of embodiment, which is basically this. Uh, in Christianity, nothing ever stays in the realm of ideas or ideation. Real Christianity or the real spiritual life found in Jesus is always one that's fleshed out into real life. Uh, a couple scriptures here for us. Um, let's go with the John chapter 1 scripture. Look at what John says at the very beginning of his prologue. He says, The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. Who's he talking about? Jesus. So in the appearance of Jesus... God now has a name and God has a face and we know what God is like. God is like Jesus, you know? And then the writer of Hebrews takes this and says something very similar but also very interesting. He says, in the past, God spoke to us through our ancestors and the prophets at many times in various ways, but in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he also made the universe. Look at what he says about the son. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Like, to see Jesus is to see God. Uh, to see Jesus is to know God. To know Jesus is to know God. And the reason this is important is the idea of embodiment or enfleshment or incarnation. All Christian spirituality is not principally an idea that we hold in our minds, but it is what is being fleshed out into our actual life. Again, it's the idea of embodiment. And I want to lean in on this because our faith is always most real when it's made tangible. Um, I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but like, I'm not a generous person by thinking generous thoughts. You know, Thinking generous thoughts is good. It's better than thinking like retributive, <laughs> mean thoughts. 
but thinking generous thoughts about a person or about a situation doesn't actually make me generous, and it actually doesn't make me Christian, right? Uh, I'm not a giver when I simply want to give. I'm not reflecting the divine image in those moments. And so anytime you or I move into those practices and move into those actions, uh, doing so is one of the ways that we know our faith is alive and well. Like, how do I know that, that, the, that the life of Christ is, is pertinent and percolating to the surface and is infusing everything that I am? I'll, I'll be generous. I'll be open. I'll be kind. Uh, when I learn to love my enemies, like when the very people who treat you the worst, when you can pray for them, uh, when you can uh, welcome people who are different, than you, all of these are, like having these thoughts is not it. It's, it's when we can put it into action. It's embodiment. Okay, number three, life is flow. Another random verse. John chapter seven. Jesus is at a festival. And on the last day, he stood up and he shouted to the crowds, Anyone who is thirsty may come to me. Anyone who believes in me may come and drink. For the scriptures declare rivers of living water will flow from his heart. And when he said living water, he was speaking of the spirit who would be given to everyone believing in him. We'll just stop there. Okay. Uh, if you are even a halfway decent Bible reader, you know that this is not a passage about giving or generosity. And so you might be thinking, well, why are we looking at this? Well, here's the reason I loved this scripture and the reason I think it's important for this morning, uh, this is really a scripture about being filled with the Spirit. Uh, you could also say, you could also say uh, that this is one of those scriptures that points to more than one thing all at one time, in a very strange way. Uh, one of the things that it points to is that the life of God, or the life of the Spirit, or the Spirit itself has a flow to it. Jesus says it's a river, right? Anyone who puts their trust in me, they can come and drink, and rivers, there's that image, rivers of living water will flow for his heart, and John makes the little editorial note there, he's actually talking about the Holy Spirit, so if you will put your trust in Jesus, Jesus will give the Spirit, and then the Spirit will cause like rivers of living water to flow from your heart, it's this idea of flow, it's this idea of like receiving something, but then also what, letting something go receiving something and letting go. Like, what is, what is one way to understand or imagine basic Christian practice? It's, it's basically this. Uh, to receive and then let go. Uh, to, to receive and then pass along. To receive and to give away. And it's, it's a wonderful image. It's the image of a river. Uh, you want the life of God? You want the life of the Spirit? Uh, posture yourself as a river and not a pond or a bog. You know, we're not called to stagnation. No, we're called to the life of God, which has a flow. And the flow is touching every area of my life, including things like generosity and giving. Uh, you want to be a Christian? You want to you live a deeply rooted Christian life? Uh, you have to give it away. Every, all, everything, like everything we receive, we're just, we're giving it away. Uh, anything you receive from God, uh, gifts of the Spirit, uh, how do you keep them alive? By giving them away. Uh, anything you receive in your life, uh, knowledge, wisdom, and understanding, how do you keep on top of that? By giving it away. How many of you noticed that you th maybe thought you knew something at one point, but when you started teaching it, you realized you didn't know it quite as well? But, but there was something about teaching it that made it deeper for you. Have you ever noticed that? What is that? It's just being a river. 
It, it's, it's the principle that everything in life that's real has flow. If you want it to be alive, you have to receive it and then give it away. Uh, what, about, what, about things like, what about things like knowledge and energy? Well, yeah, you receive it. You want to keep it? Give it away. Uh, you want to you stay sharp in your life? Uh, give the things that are most precious to you away. Well, then what about money? Yeah, you want to you have like the life of God touch your finances? Uh, receive it, the things that you have worked for, and then look for ways to give it away. Uh, do not become a pond. Do not become a bog. Like position yourself to be a river, even in things like giving, and something wonderful will happen. All right, let me say this again through the Apostle Paul, famous giving passage. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 9. By the way, the background on this little scripture is Paul's taking up an offering from all kinds of churches all over that he's been traveling to, and he's taking an offering back to the Christian believers in Jerusalem who are really suffering. And he says, hey, Corinthians, remember this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. What is he saying there? Everything we've just been mentioning. Life has a flow, right? Like, you want to you receive more? You've got to turn something loose. Uh, you want to you reap generously? You've got to turn something loose. Uh, each of you should give what you've decided in your heart. He's talking about the offering. Uh, not reluctantly or under any compulsion. Like, it's not about, like, somebody can't make you, you know? Uh, God is not interested in putting a gun to your head. Uh, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Some translations say God loves a hilarious giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly, so that in all things at all times, having all that you need, you'll abound in every good work. It is written, they have freely scattered the gifts to the poor. Their righteousness endures forever. Look at verse 10. Now he, supplies, now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You'll be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion and through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. All Paul is saying here is this. Life has flow. It's a river. It's the exact thing, same thing Jesus was talking about when it comes to receiving the Spirit. Everything that comes, it has to find an outlet. It has to find an outlet. It would be good for you and I to let the things that are coming to us to also move through us. It'll make room for more. Some of us have wondered in the last, the last season or so, like, why does it seem like everything is drying up? Like, why does it feel like my spiritual life is drying up? Or why does it feel like my money is drying up? Or why does it feel like my, my zest for life or my interest in my job? Why, why does everything feel like it's drying up? It, it could be that we've just not allowed things to move on, to move through us. It could be that we just became a pond when God was asking us to be a river. Let it go. All right, now let's get practical. Number four, I think. Got to have a plan. Let's start getting practical for a moment. Uh, one of the things I've noticed, especially with topics like this, is the need to have a plan, especially when it comes to money, because it really is true that life has a flow and without a plan for my time or my energy or my money, um, without some sort of an intention, it can just be swept away. How many of you know if you don't have a plan for your money, uh, life has a plan for your money? Right? How many of you know that one of your cars will never break down? It's both of them. 
and one of your kids will not have a cavity, it's all of them, there will be 37 cavities. This will all happen at the same time. Like, without a plan for your money, uh, you are, you're basically, you're basically just living inside of this bigger flow that you didn't know what was happening. It's called life, and life definitely has a plan for your money. And here's what I mean when it comes to having a plan for your money. Uh, this is super basic here for a second. Uh, we all need a plan for our spending. We need a plan for saving. But here's the other part. We actually need a plan for giving. Uh, probably, uh, if you have grown up in certain circles, you've probably heard people talk to you about having a plan for saving and probably had a plan for spending. That's called a budget. Uh, very, very few of us have ever uh, done that third thing, which is make a plan for giving. And here's what I've found. i found that if I don't have a plan for giving, life just sort of evaporates everything away. Uh, let me add one more image to our stack of images here. Let's think about that river, like the life of God is a river. It has flow. Uh, and let's just imagine that your life is a field next to the river. And here's what it means when you get a plan together for your spending, your saving, and your giving. Uh, it's like you dig a trench from the river and you just bring it over to the field of your life you know that's what it is without 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 a plan you know the river could just keep going and you, know, you just get passed by somehow especially when it comes to money it's really really difficult but if you dig a little trench and the trench is just a plan and for some of us in the room it could be like a really big intense plan because that's the kind of people you are you're like spreadsheet people how many of you are spreadsheet people yeah see enneagram ones right over here some people are spreadsheet people and they like to like make categories and they like to get all the receipts and put them into the, you know what? That's great. It's wonderful. Uh, some of us will, our plan will be much less intense than that, you know, be more intuitive, but it's still good. And let me, let me tell you why having a plan is good. Uh, not only does it allow us to live toward the intention of our life, you know, it, it it forces us to think about our life in a really big way because having a plan means I want to think about, well, what do I want to spend my money on? Uh, what do I want to save? And, but how many of you know that when you start talking about spending and saving, what you're really talking about is like what's important to my life? Like what is the dream? Like what is the thing I'm here for, right? And then if we talk about giving, well, then we're, we're always, now we're digging down into like really big stuff. So having a plan allows us to actually live with intention and here's what happens. If you can have a plan, you can actually live the life that you're wanting to live more. And then here's the thing after, after you get a plan and live with intention. A life will happen to you and you'll fall off the wagon. Both of your cars will break and all the kids will have cavities. It'll happen. And here's what happens after you fall off the wagon. It's fine. It's fine. And here's why. Because you have a plan. And if you have a plan, you know where you fell off the wagon and you know how to get back on. This is really, really important stuff. Like if you don't have a plan, you know, everything could be happening and your life keeps like dissolving and you don't know why. And by the way, just getting another raise at work won't help. Like unless you have a plan, having another raise at work won't help because we just, we just increase our level to the next paycheck. It's just like, well, we're going to France, you know? <laughs> That's what, that's what it will do, you know? But having a plan lets us know if we fall off the wagon, like where did we fall off the wagon and why, and, it, and then we know how to get back on. So get a plan. Plan your spending. Plan your saving. 
Plan your giving. Plan your giving. Uh, here's what that means. Uh, maybe, maybe some of us in the room need a budget that shows us what's happening with our money. Uh, here's the other thing you could do, plan-wise. Maybe you should automate your giving. Uh, you can even automate your giving at the vineyard. You can do that. Like, just make it automatic. Go online. Make it automatic. Maybe you need a spreadsheet. Or maybe you need an alarm that goes off on your phone on a certain day that tells you to give. Can I tell you something that's on my phone? It's been on here forever. I have a little alarm that goes off at 1215 uh, every Sunday that says, don't forget to give. Why? Because I'll forget to give. And that's my plan. You know? It's a very simple thing. Need a plan. It could be complex or it could be simple. All right, what might this look like? Number five, it looks like having intention, and, and it looks like you and I are planning ways that we can give. And when it comes to our Christian life in the church, that means we're looking for ways that we can give our time, energy, and money to our Christian community. You know, uh, What does it mean to really be a part of the family here at the Vineyard? It means to give time, energy, and money. That's what it means. Uh, now I want to talk about money just for a few minutes, and I want to dig into the details. I want to do a little Old Testament, and then do some New Testament, and then we'll be done. Um, in the Old Testament, people gave a tithe, and tithe meant 10%. It just meant 10%, and it was like kind of, it was required. It, was, it wasn't an optional thing. And here's what the tithe did. It, it fed the priests, and it took care of the temple. Read for that. It fed the pastor, and it kept the church awake. You know, it kept the lights on. But here's what's really, really interesting. That was like Old Testament, and it went over and over on this. Uh, in the New Testament, there's almost nothing said about required tithes. So it's everywhere in the Old Testament. It's almost not in the New Testament at all. There is one moment where Jesus mentions it, and it's Luke chapter 11. I want to read that to you. Uh, Jesus is busting on Pharisees here. He says, Woe to you, Pharisees, because you give God a tenth of your herbs. Like, you're so into this tithing thing, you're, you're tithing your garden herbs. right? This is actually Jesus being hard and funny kind of all at the same time. He's like... Woe to you, Pharisees, you give a tenth of your rosemary and your time, but you neglect justice. And by the, word, by the way, uh, the word justice in the Bible is always connected to the poor and the marginalized. He says, you give a tenth of your mint, your rue, and all kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God. He says, you should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. So what is Jesus saying? Uh, he's saying a couple things. He's like, number one, there's something here where Jesus is saying, uh, tithing, you should do it. But you got to love God and you got to treat people good. Uh, another way of saying it would also be this. No amount of giving money will ever replace loving God first and most and treating people good. You know? Amos says this over and over. Amos says, uh, no amount of worship will ever make up for treating the poor badly. He says, get your song. I hate your songs is what God says in Amos. I hate the guitars. You know, that's basically what he's saying. And Jesus is sort of riffing on that right here, you know? And so there's two ways to see this. Like, uh, is Jesus saying that giving and tithing is good? Yeah. Uh, is there something more fundamental? Yeah. He's saying how we are to God and who we are to people is way more fundamental. All right. Got it. So some of us may be thinking, well, do we give 10% or not? Well, let me just, let me say a couple things that are going to muddy the water. Can I muddy the water for a second? Uh, muddying the water, number one. Uh, I believe that the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus really does set us free. And I think it sets us free from everything, you know? 
Uh, all that ceremonial law uh, in the Old Testament, all the stuff about sacrificing animals, all the stuff about special holidays, uh, we don't have to do any of that because of Jesus. And how many of you know that's a good thing? Like, you don't have to kill a sheep or a dove to be right with God. And you don't have to celebrate a particular holiday to be okay with God. Like, none of it is getting your way in. Now, all of the moral aspects of the law, it's still in effect. Can't kill people. Like, <laughs> killing people, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, stealing things from your neighbor, we're not going to do that, right? Like, that's still in. But the ceremonial aspects, like everything that made the temple run, it's over. Why? Because Jesus is our temple. Like, uh, Jesus is our Sabbath rest. Jesus is our holiday. Jesus is our sacrifice. All of those things, he takes care of it completely, up to and including uh, Jesus Jesus is our tithe. He is, he is everything paid to the Father in full. And here's the thing. You know what? If you don't come to church on Easter, uh, you're still in the club. Like there's no, hol- not even Christian holidays save you. Uh, Easter Sunday morning doesn't save you. Jesus saves you. If you don't come to the Christmas Eve service where we light each other's hair on fire with tiny candles here at the vineyard, uh, it's fine. You're still in, right? And, and if for some reason, if for some reason, uh, you didn't give a tithe, uh, you're, you're not going straight to hell. Uh, Jesus really has set us free. Now, let me really, re- some of us are like, oh, this is good. <laughs> I feel better. Okay, we got to hang on because the New Testament goes like something way beyond everything that the Old Testament laid out. Like the Old Testament was like, I want 10%. And then all the, new, all the, all the examples in the New Testament are like, whoa. Uh, first off, the New Testament is founded on Jesus who gives all of his life. And not some of it. You know, it's like, okay, dang. Uh, and, then, and then to make it even more complicated, all of the early believers who followed around the Jesus who gave his entire life and not 10% of it, all of them in Acts chapter 2, 42 through 47, they shared what? Everything they had. Everything. And can I tell you something? Uh, they, were sharing stuff, they were sharing stuff with people who were not good. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, people were sharing everything they had because they had been so touched by the Savior who gave everything he had. Like, how do we know? Like, how do we know that, we're, that we, the life of God has touched us? How do we know? Is it 10%? No, it's going to be something deeper, right? And not only that, but the passage that we read in 2 Corinthians, uh, Paul, in the previous moment, up above it, uh, he says uh, to the Christians in Corinth, he's like, hey guys, uh, I just want you to know, the church at Macedonia, and we don't really know what would happen at Macedonia. We just know that the church in Macedonia was really poor. It was the poorest church Paul had. He says, hey, I just want you to know, Corinthians, get your gifts ready. I'm taking them to Jerusalem. And by the way, you need to know that the church in Macedonia, the poorest one, they've given the most. Right? Jesus gives it all. The early church shares everything. And the poorest people from Macedonia, they gave the most. Like, what does it mean? Is it, is it really about 10% or not? No, I don't think it is. I think it's about uh, waking up to the fact that our God is a giver, that the Spirit of God is a river, that something has to be moving through. And there's something about uh, New Testament Christianity that is deeply rooted in ideas of sacrifice and sharing and openness and extravagance. Uh, there's a moment in the New Testament where a woman, we even kind of sang about it this morning, a woman uh, brings a jar of expensive perfume worth a year's wages, and in one moment, she breaks it on the floor and pours it on Jesus' uh, head, hands, and feet, right? 
And one of the guys in the room at the moment says, Jesus, you need to stop her because we could have used that, we could have used that perfume and sold it to the poor. And Jesus says, no, what she's done for me is a beautiful thing. And then he adds this other line. He says, and she'll be remembered forever for what she gave. You know? Uh, There's something about New Testament giving that is extravagant. And Jesus will defend extravagant givers. Like imagine taking a a $60,000 bottle of perfume and pouring it on Jesus. It's amazing. Amazing. Okay, so what should we do? Just really, really practical. Uh, Here's what I think. Feel free to disagree. Here's what I think. I think. I think a tithe is a good place to start. Like, if you don't know what to do, give 10%, you know? And if there's a moment in your life that you're at 7%, like you, get, you do your taxes and you realize, oh, we were at 7%, uh, breathe a sigh of relief because the 10% didn't save you. It was Jesus. And if you come into a moment in your life when you hit a really big lick and the Spirit says to you, give everything, you should do it. And there may be a moment when you have very, very little and the Spirit says, do this, Give this or be this. Uh, you should do it because that's what it means to be like your father. It's extravagant. It's sacrificial. It's open. It's sharing. Uh, it's non-conditional. It's consistent. That's what it is. Okay. I want to wrap this up, and I want to talk to you real quick about the future of our little church here. Um, we bought some land over here a few days ago. In fact, we have the deed. Uh, it took... It took a lot of work. Uh, somehow Andrew <sighs> Somehow Andrew and Renee Dobson did things that no one else could do. Uh, it literally took us forever. And when I say forever, I mean years years to figure out who owned this piece of property. And how could we buy it? And so we bought about four-tenths of an acre over here, the little scrubby like trees over there. It's kind of flat and looks like a swamp. It's, it's just right over there. Anyway, we bought it, and here's what we're going to do. In the next few weeks, whenever it dries out and the bulldozer dump truck guy, when he has an opening in his schedule, he's going to come over, and he's going to help us destroy a little more of the planet right there. <laughs> so I'm going to need everybody in the room to plant at least two trees. <laughs> Because we're going to take all of those down, and we've already asked God to forgive us, and he's going to help us. But we are going to plant some trees. Like we, like, we all have to do our part. We, we're going to take those out. We're going to uproot them, and we're going to put gravel over there. We're going to extend our parking lot by about four-tenths of an acre. And then after we do that, the next thing we're going to do is we're going to hire an architect, and we're going to ask the architect, how might we add on a little bit of space to this building to do some of the things that need to be doing? And you might be thinking, well, what is that? Well, we need some extra kid space. Like, we need another, we need another, at least one more kid's room immediately. We really need some, a place for our youth to be. We need another bathroom or two. <clears throat> you know what I mean? You live here. Uh, this room is, this room is right, but, but for whatever reason, the people who come into this room keep having children. <laughs> and they're not stopping first service was bananas. I mean, I mean, wonderful, right? Like truly wonderful and utterly, but kids were everywhere, like just little kittens of children. (laughs) And that's great. And and that is always who we've been, always. But we need to make provision for them. So we're going to clear the trees, expand the parking lot, 
and then we're going to get an actual plan from a real architect for how might we expand some of this without eating up too much of our parking lot. And here's just what I want to tell you. That won't be cheap. Uh, like the architect's plan will probably be ten grand or 15000 You know, that's just what it is. Because it's going to be one of those, you've got to get a Frankfurt stamp on it. And that's like the most expensive kind. And I don't know what the bulldozer guy is going to cost, but every time I've ever had a bulldozer guy come to my house, it's been a lot. You know, and every time you make a parking lot, you're like, oh, you know, a load of gravel. You know, a load of gravel will cover like one carpet tile. <laughs> yeah. This is going to be expensive. Uh, and the reason I'm saying that is every single year here at the Vineyard, sometime in March, we do something called a big give offering. We're going to do that again this year, March 1st. I think this is the first Sunday in March, March 1st. We're going to do our big give offering. And here's what I would like to do. We're going to receive that, and all of that money that is received that day, we're going to take it to, A, pay for our land, put some gravel down, pay the dump truck guy, and get an architect to tell us what to do. And here's, I, I, I don't know, Here, here's what I think that's going to take. I think that's going to take fifty or 60000 bucks, and I think it would be awesome if we would just knock that out on that Sunday. Um, there's enough of us here, and we can do that. And historically... That's what we normally do. So here's what I would love. Two things in response to this message. Number one, if you are a person who is finding their church home, their church family here, if this is where you're entering the river of God, if this is where you're experiencing the life of God, if your kids come here, if you've been here for a while, if you think you're going to be here for a while, I would like to invite you to two things. Number one, uh, if you're a giver, thank you. If you're not, I'd like to invite you to be a consistent uh, planned giver here at the Vineyard. And then number two, in the next month, I would like for you to pray uh, and ask God, like, how could you partner with us on the big give offering and we'll just take care of this first section of the next thing we know we need to do. Does that make sense? Yeah. I just want to tell you a couple things about our church real quick and then we'll be done. Uh, number one, uh, we've always lived below our means here at the Vineyard. Like, we're not great at everything, but we're pretty good at living below our means. I mean, we've kept these terrible purple chairs for way too many years. Uh, but because of that, because of that, uh, our building we're currently in right now is completely paid off. We don't owe anybody on it, and we have money in the bank. Uh, Andrew puts money into the bank every time we can because we know there's a future coming that's going to be more expensive, and I think we're about to step into it. You know, and we have a really good financial team here who helps us make really smart decisions. We have like actual CFOs who help us make smart decisions. And so we just know that we feel like we've done the work that we needed to do up to this point in terms of being wise. And now it's another moment for the church family to come together and go, okay, how can we partner to do the next thing? The other thing I want to tell you is historically here at the Vineyard, We've never had a mega rich person come in and go, hey, I love what you're doing. Here's $3 million, you know? If you're here, we'll take your $3 million. <laughs> However, that's never really been a part of our story. And that's okay. It's like totally okay. Here's what this church has historically been. Uh, working moms and dads, like really regular people, who, who responded to the generosity of God and who've been consistently kind and open-handed with this church. And because of that, we've always had more than we needed. And so I just want to say two things. Number one, thank you. And then number two, like this is another moment where the family of God comes together to do the next thing that we feel like God is asking us to do. And I, I think that has to do with our building and our land. And I just want to say it's going to take all of us doing something. Like nobody here has to do everything, but 
probably going to take all of us to do something. Amen? Amen. Hey, uh, if you want to stand up, and if you're on ministry team, come on up this morning. Thank you. Thanks again for stopping by the podcast of the Vineyard Church in Campbellsville, Kentucky. If you'd like to keep up with what's happening at the Vineyard, you can follow us on social media. Until next time.